Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Joining me today is Jeru Billamoria, the social entrepreneur and founder of the One Family Foundation. And a commitment to family is one that runs deep. Tragically losing her father at a young age, Jeru made a career-changing decision to create Childline India and devote herself to a life driven by a belief in the best of human nature and the mission that every child can and should be economically empowered. Incredible, impactful, and inspiring. This is the story of the determination to make a difference at scale and the drive to deliver change. Jeru, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you, Michael. Great to be with you and to chat. Oh, well, listen, I mean, you have an incredible story, inspiring. And I'd like to start with with something you said. You, You said, believe in your dreams, follow them and work hard. Don't try to go about it alone because you were just a drop in the ocean. Is that a good summary of the person I'm interviewing in terms of your 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 approach to life, I guess? Pretty much. Yes, it's a good summary. That's what I believe in. And so let the, it flow. Just let, let, it let, flow. The world, let it flow. But also, I suppose it infers a belief in teams and a belief in the collective of, of groups of people and their ability to sort of come together in, in common cause. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't believe anyone can ever do anything alone. Everything that we have to do is done together and everyone has a different role to play. So Mm. for me, it's all about the power of the collective. Mm. I mean, mean, and what a a collective. I mean, we'll we'll get into, you know, some... Some, I suppose, the chapters of change in your life and the various forums that either created or joined from the Ashoka Fellowship to the World Economic Forum that you've joined to Childline India. Now, in terms of where where this kind of commitment began, you grew up in Mumbai. Originally, we're on the path, a very different path, professional services path. I understand there is a, a, a history of, of numbers in the family. You were going to be a chartered accountant. Pick up the story in terms of the early Giroux in terms of the life you thought you were going to lead? Well, to be honest, I was just growing up in a family where there was both an accountant, who was my father and my cousin, who was a chartered accountant and other cousins who were chartered accountants. And so that seemed one way to go. And my mother, who was a professional social worker, who always talked about it. So I think I was blessed with having both business and finance on one side and pure social work and, Mm. you know, that on the other. So I can't say it was really a choice as much as uh, as I grew up some I really just felt expecting a, yes exactly so I would say I grew into it but I always say one of the things which was really strong for me where I was brought up was a sense of duty hmm. so I'm not super rich or anything like that but it was if you have enough it's your duty to give back So it was the strong sense of duty always. And I guess my brother followed in finance and I followed in social work. (laughs) I mean, we'll get into those first big steps into social work, but everything I've read about you infers that that family is important to you and, and actually the, the values that I guess that you have and the views that shaped your your kind of like view of the world. I mean, it, it, it seems that family was a very important catalyst in in that journey. Tell us about that that environment. Well, I think family was and family is. I I always firmly believe that, and it's not just family. It's also friends. It's others. It's the ecosystem which surrounds you, which makes you who you are. So I was really lucky. I had fantastic parents who were very nurturing and who always let me, you know, do who I be what I have to 
when I was starting in my journey with child lying and I was struggling and, you know, nobody really believed in the concept. It was my brother who said, just go. You don't need the money. Just go Mm. do what you have to supported me. My cousins came in to help out. And then when I'm married, I have the most fantastic husband in the world. And he supports. It's a real family affair. It's a total family affair. (laughs) And one family foundation was actually the idea of my children who are adopted and on their 10th adoption anniversary wanted to give back. Mm. So their whole idea was that mom, we are so lucky can't, and that, you know, so can't we as a family do something? Mm. And even the term one family came from a song which we used to sing when they were young. Oh, is so that yes. right? Is that, yeah. that well, we're going to get on to one family in a moment. I mean, I mean obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to raise the sadness of your father's passing at a young age but I I read something about that you said about it that really stuck in my mind is is that that when he did pass away you said that we had long queues of people from the streets who arrived to pay their respects even my mother didn't know that he had silently silently supported them through the years this seems like the story of a person that just quietly got on with things and quietly sort of wanted to make a difference to the lives of others how did that impact you Drew, in terms of what what you were to go on to do with the growth of Childline India becoming an international network how did that value I, I guess of of just getting on with things and making that difference impact you very much so my father whenever I was growing up always uh, talked about that and his mindset was much more from a charity perspective but still his whole mindset was that what you do you don't need to talk about so like in Gujarati there's a saying so that was when he would say what one hand does the other hand doesn't need to do so that is a saying <laughs> and, it's, and it's basically yeah. that you if you're doing something for someone don't do it because you want to show off just do it because it has to be done mm-hmm. sort of a thing and I think that has been pretty much my whole philosophy so as far as possible trying to do what has to be done but not like going there and shouting out aloud but sort of going there and just doing your business and getting along with it you know in the background and that's shaped leadership for me in what people would call servant leadership or whatever but Mm. basically in the background leadership much more well that leadership was to deliver an incredible first chapter with Childline India Foundation, which you created in 1996, the first of its kind in the country, and something that you were to go on to um, expand internationally with Child Helpline International. Summarize that journey, if you will, in terms of, I suppose, what you were doing and the impact it made on you to deliver that level of change. Honestly, I was just listening to the kids and following. So I'd say a lot of it was just listening and learning. I learned a lot from street kids. I would say that when we started out. And then the second part, so I always say, as I said, I have two things in my brain. So there's the emotion and just listening and learning and following. And then there is the intellect, which is, okay, what's the strategy? What will be the numbers? What would be the optimized business plan? So sort of always having this yin and yang sort of uh, almost dual brain always making Mm. it happen. But uh, primarily, I really believe that to do something, you have to listen to the people and try to do your best to meet their needs, whoever they are. Do you know when often in in people's careers, when they think back, there'll be a a very vivid experience 
as part of a particular chapter of the journey that will bring it to life in terms of the, you know, the catalyst to do something or the change that they help create. When you think back to Childline, because we're going to go on to other things that you've done since, but as a formative part of your experience as a social entrepreneur and an activist, what are the things that you think about that you'd share with listeners about that particular experience? I learned from the kids, the and also when I worked with homeless men in New York, I learned a strong sense of resilience. I think for me that has shaped who I am today is the optimism which has come because kids on the streets had tough lives as in many cases also did homeless Mm. men. But what I really loved, especially from the street kids, was they could always still see the positive, many of them, Mm -hmm. and have that freedom and that zest for life. And to date, when I get into, I think all of us do, I'll speak for myself, into a whiny mode or saying, eh, this is not working. (laughs) Don't believe it. (laughs) You know, then I will always say, what the shit am I doing? Like, we are so blessed. Mm. And, you know, and then sort of moving from there. But, but I suppose the thing is, I mean, you mentioned the word optimism. You could equally say that for a lot of people, they might feel overwhelmed because, you know, you, you finish that. One country may feel like a challenge. 145 countries, which is, you know, what, what the Child Helpline International has, has gone on to become, is a immense task. I mean, running 176 individual child helplines I, I was reading. What's the learnable lesson that keeps you optimistic as opposed to overwhelmed? The learnable lesson is let go. For one, Child Lang has a very different, ma- Child Helpline International and Child Lang have a very different management model. We don't have the management model where we raise the money and tell people what to do. Mm. So Child Lang India is a social franchise. Uh, we have over a thousand members who are actually running the services on the ground and they are actually doing the work. So hats off to the, all the partners who are doing that in India. And similarly, at the global level, we never said we are going to start up when I moved from India to the Netherlands and I had committed to going global. Mm. I never said that I'm going to say we'll set up a global headquarters and then raise money globally and then distribute it. It was always there are people at the country level who know what they're doing 10 times better than me. So we listen to them, follow what they are saying and set up helplines. And then when that mindset is there and there's the whole point of letting go, it's very easy to scale. Mm. I always say scale is learning to let go. Mm, I mean, I, I, well, 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 I suppose two thoughts were coming out, but, but let's focus on the first one because I'll go on to the second one in a minute. But I, I once read this great phrase that being human is a team sport. I mean, it feels like, you know, a lot of the your ability to scale has been around this, this ability to build teams of people and followings where you find people that have got similar cause, similar purpose. How, how do you become this sort of magnetic character, I guess, in terms I'm of not building the alliances? Magnet. I'm not the magnetic character. I'm the antithesis of the magnetic You're the character. Anti- <laughs> the anti-magnet. <laughs> uh, because I think what people really come is when they see that their own leadership is being showcased. Mm. So I think leadership has to be such where there is ownership. Right. So the only way one can have a distributed network is by giving ownership to everybody. So mm. even in Child Lang India, when we were setting up, there were many people who would say, I started Child Lang. And I'd say, yes, they started Child Lang in this city. They are the founders over here. So it's 
everybody is in it and recognizing the shared ownership. And, you know, there's always a saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. So for any project, it needs every single person. And, And therefore, I honestly don't believe that there is any magnetism. It's actually distributed leadership and distributed ownership. Okay, right. So distributed energy as well, I I suppose. Everything, yes. And that's the collective power which mm, comes through. and, and, And I wonder whether what we are actually talking about is what makes great social enterprise and social entrepreneurs. Because on the one hand, this last few minutes, you've been talking about scale, you've been talking about drive, you've been talking about lots of things that I guess tick the entrepreneur box. But I suppose the collective, the societal nature, the social impact of of what you're doing. I mean, a lot of people, when they hear a phrase like, like social entrepreneurship, they'll say, don't get it. What is it? What does it do? In terms of what it means to be a social entrepreneur for you personally, Give your own sense, I suppose, of the working definition, the working sense of actually what it means to be in that space with that role, trying to deliver change. Well, there's so many definitions I dread to go into that whole area. <laughs> well, what does it mean? To, I suppose well, what it means to me is trying to create a positive social impact mm. and at the widest scale possible and respecting all the people who are part of the journey to make mm. that happen. But it also, I mean, you've, you've, you've talked in the past about being entrepreneurial can be challenging with every achievement and every step forward. You can take another step backwards. I, I guess another part of this is, is learning to sort of, you know, sort of not only live with your failures, but actually take a lesson from them in terms of actually how you move the dial forward. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. There is, when I was young, I used to get very frustrated and angry with uh, failure. And it would be huge drama in your one owns head. And now I'm not saying um, don't get frustrated, but now it's like, yeah, it's part of the journey. Mm. You know, and I, I also believe that if you don't experience unhappiness, it's like if you don't experience unhappiness, you don't experience happiness. Mm. If you don't experience loss, you're not grateful for what you have. So, so the, these are the human experience. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you are an Ashoka fellow. I, I interviewed Bill Drayton, the the um the founder of, of Ashoka, and of and of course his his mission is that everyone can be a change maker, mm-hmm. that, that this is a world where people just need to give themselves permission. A lot of people listen to this show and think, I'm listening to a really inspiring life story, but what can I do? What mm-hmm. what's the what's the difference I can make? What's your advice to people in their own lives about possibly thinking about taking paths less trodden or less thought about in terms of their own future? So I really believe that I really agree with Bill that every person can be a change maker in their own way and people have to find their paths. Again, if I go back to my parents, hmm, sorry, again, as I said. Don't worry. I think think we're going to call this interview the family affair. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, but my father did a lot of social change by just one-on-one, you know, being there, listening, counseling, helping financially, whatever. My mom was a professional social worker with a lot of research, analysis, and change. In my own family, I'm supposedly the professional social worker or the social entrepreneur or whatever, but I can do that because of the incredible support that I have from my husband in partnership, you know, and he says, okay, 
I'm going to do this. And he said, because I had a lot of travel in my work. So he was bring, supporting me to bring about the change. Mm. Or if I look at my children, uh, both of them were very clear. Maybe we will not become professionals, but we want to make sure that everything in our lives we do, we can do. So they were pretty young when they thought of One Family Foundation. But their whole idea was instead of having money, and I'm saying money because of that, why don't we go and why don't we take all our pocket money and stuff we are getting and give it to kids who are less off they went and did an internship at the age of like 14 and 12 mm. so i think it's it's that it's even the small bit so my whole message in this very long winded explanation is you don't need to do a lot you don't need to be a jaru but whatever you do in your day-to-day your day-to-day acts of kindness itself make you a change make make you make a change everyday acts of kindness make you a change maker i love i love that i love that so to be committed to kindness because the thing you know the thing i think about with your career is that one way of of looking at it is that you know you've you've been involved in systems change you know from work on the future of children and families through to work on the future of the sustainable development goals because you are you know you are a serial collaborator right in terms of the the things that you create the other way of looking at it is that the route to those changes have been the belief that small steps add up to giant leaps isn't it in terms of actually that you've got to you've got to start within and you've got to start with certain ways of doing things if you want to create the bigger systems change Absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, I, again, I totally agree with you, Michael, so I can't say anything different. And I so also, first of my really believe... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I also really believe that every person is doing something. If you're basically a kind human being and you care and you help, you are also bringing about change in your own way. And it's there. It may not be at a very systematic level. But again, even in civil society, everyone talks about the big NGOs. I firmly believe that it is the people at the grassroots who are really affecting the maximum change Mm. because they know the community, they build on it and they make it happen. And that's the reason for collaborative systems change. I'm just going to say that collaborative systems change to me is a lot of people coming together and having the collective voice and the collective power to bring about a change in the system. And true SDG achievement will only happen when we start believing in that power of the collective rather Mm. than the glamour of the individual. But I suppose, you know, we're we're living in a world where some of these views might be seen as as quite countercultural to the, I guess, the prevailing headwinds of a world that feels divided, a world that feels like it it came together to try and deliver, you know, the you know the kind of the reversal of climate change, but didn't seem to be able to get there. A world that's struggling through a pandemic of the haves and the have-nots in terms of vaccines. When you see this kind of, I suppose, the collection of evidence that says, well, you know, the collaboration just isn't happening. What's your response to that in terms of? sat there as as a, as somebody who is who is a collaborator who is a catalyst who wants to achieve and i'm looking at the kind of you know some of the words in in the um in the logo behind you of catalyst 2030 collaborating to achieve the sdgs what needs to happen next it hasn't happened because we are thinking in the same traditional paradigms power in the hands of a few 
power in the hands of a couple of decision makers. And then that leaves a lot of ego-driven discussions. Mm. If the power shifted to the collective, if it shifted to the people who whom it really matters, that's when true change is going to happen. So for true change to happen, we actually need to start working on a narrative shift where traditional leadership paradigms need to shift. Mm. where collective mindsets need to come in, where listening at all levels needs to come in and shaping things and dialogues. And I think that's when the change is going to happen. So we need to inverse the pyramid. And it reminds me of that, you know, to slightly borrow the the Einstein words, that you can't expect change by just doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result. Um, Exactly. Tell us a little bit about the One Family Foundation, because this is... This and Catalyst 2030 seem to be very big areas of focus for you in terms of the sort of work you're doing. Let's just introduce One Family Foundation first, and then we'll go on to Catalyst 2030. One Family Foundation actually was just started as a small family foundation, and then it grew into me saying, I'm old, I don't need to start something new, we'll just incubate projects. And we incubated two projects that didn't go so great. And two, one is a cello, which is already taken off on its own. And the other one we are still mm-hmm. incubating is Catalyst, mm. which, um, yeah. And so basically, currently, a lot of my time is on Catalyst. So, so it feels like, though, that innovation and new ways of doing things feels like a join between your family foundation mm-hmm. and then Catalyst 2030, which is, you know, this, this big, I guess, social enterprise view about, well, how do you deliver on the world's to-do items of the sustainable development goals. Yes, and Catalyst was co-founded by, I think, around 100 of the world's leading social entrepreneurs. So it has collaboration in its DNA, and they all came together because they thought that uh, alone we can do so much, together we can do triple the um, multiple. So Mm. I think this is also for me a very big realization which is coming in the whole sector that together we can do much more. And Mm. the belief in the collective power, the belief in distributed leadership, Catalyst is not a legal entity by choice because we are saying that then you again have the old ways. So it's looking at a whole new development paradigm Mm. and a whole new way of achieving change. And I take no credit. I think there's a lot of visionary social entrepreneurs driving this whole different movement forward. But but I suppose sitting, listening to you speak is that it means that more people are going to have to see themselves as being in the business of change for that to work. You know, that in if you look at it historically, we've kind of said, right, you know, well, we voted for a government to do that or, you know, an official actor. And and actually, even at the recent COP26, you got a sense that business was there showing its potential for innovative solutions, that actually the third sector was there in terms of, the, you know, the social components, that, that there needs to be much more, I guess, of an ecosystem play. But that then, I suppose requires a more of an equality of decision-making authority or or ability and 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 that is a you know I, I just wonder some people you know I think it's World Economic Forum which I know you are very closely involved with they, they call it the the great reset in terms of the advice you would give to those with power that don't like the look of giving it away what what's what what, what would you say to the to the powerful that are listening to change makers today 
I would say don't give it away. Start with sharing. Take small steps. When you start sharing, you'll realize how much more you can achieve. Because I believe everybody, almost everybody wants to do good in the world. Mm. And it's just unleashing that positivity in everyone. That's mm. my firm belief. It does feel that another theme that runs through a lot of your work and your writing is, is justice, social justice. I mean, you're in a, you're now based in a country that has the Hague, you know, as, as, the, as the sort of, I suppose, the sort of the world's court on this. I mean, is that a... Is that a fair sense of of who you are that actually a lot of this is about, you know, the distribution or redistribution of power structures, that there's a there's a bigger goal as well as part of this than than just good work in of itself? It's very strongly based on social justice and equity. Definitely. Mm. Is it a good time for somebody who is interested in social justice? I mean, do, do you see that there are the ingredients to affect change or Or is it more difficult than it's ever been? I think it's a mixed bag. I think because of uh, COVID, we have much more inclusiveness. So much more. So I think it's a mixed bag. And yet at the same time, you see a lot of structures which are closing in. But I am a firm optimist. So I'm sure the change will happen. Mm. You know, We're rapidly running out of time. So I want to go through to something that you said about success. You know, and that for you, success will be when every child in the world has access to a service like Childline and knows that someone who cares is just a phone call away. And when I read that, it kind of made me think about the poetry of the the opening quote that that I used, which was believe in your dreams, follow them and, and work hard. This, I think, is something that that people struggle with, the, the idea of I may have a dream to do something. But what turns the dream into action? What what are the what are the triggers that you can look to that you can summon to have, I suppose, the courage and I suppose the courage to take the step in, in your own life? I think the first step is always the most difficult, but I don't think it's courage. I think it's just doing it. Mm. Uh, we can say a lot of things. <laughs> but, Might be a uh, semantic conversation there, Jury. <laughs> yeah, just go ahead and do it. You know, I, I, every time people put a lot of emphasis on a lot of things and I'm like, if you're hungry, you're going to eat. So if mm. you really want to do something, you're going to do it. Mm. Otherwise, it's just, you know. But, but, I, but I think that, that that is a very rarefied quality. I mean, has that just always been you? Because, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, you look at Richard Branson is screw it, let's do it. Nike, just do it. I mean, there's lots yeah. of people that, that say that. But, but I'm thinking about, you know, the young Giroux who's, who's doing her, her sort of accountancy examinations and is expecting to go maybe a life where, you know, if we're talking about the parallel lives is that, you know, you get to a point where you decide, I've got to jump lane. I've got to do something. Now, a lot of people would look at that and go, don't like the look of that. It's too risky. I've invested too much time. I've done lots of different things. And something holds them back. So so it is a, an individual act of, of courage, I guess, to say, this might not be for me. And I have a dream to do something different. But the difference between, you know, a dream and living a life is doing it as you say, in terms of the kind of the the human emotion to do it, what are are the things that you would draw down on the advice you'd give about, you know, the fear of loss and how you overcome it? Maybe it's many years ago, but I would say for me, it was just following an instinct. And that's how I remember it. It just felt right to do something. 
It felt right. Jury Bill and Maury, I love interviews where I just think I've only just begun <laughs> in the conversation that I've had. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I, I feel that it, it's been a story of where I don't know, but I would imagine that your father would be very proud of you if he could see how you've gone on to live your life and the values that you've taken into this. I think for so many, so many learnable lessons from this and also being at the intersection of so many issues of change from the future of children to the future of social justice and the, and the future of the planet. Thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Mike. Thank you. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 